0: Good evening. If you detect a southern accent, you are correct. (laughs) I tell you, I've got to say, I am so impressed that you all have an apatosaur femur in the lobby. It's like we should just all move out there and let's talk out there. So well done, Pastor. Uh, That is great. I have some new ideas. I don't know how the guys at our church are going to go for this, but we're going to talk about it. I can assure you of that. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to be here tonight with you and to share. The Lord has blessed me with some unique opportunities, and so I'm thankful for that. But so much of those opportunities with respect to digging and fossil excavation really, in turn, become an opportunity for me to come before people like yourselves. And to not just talk about paleontology itself, but really to declare the greatness of God, the reminder of the flood and his judgment, and really the ultimately the need we have for a savior in Jesus Christ. And so the fossils really provide just a unique opportunity, a unique venue for us to have these kinds of conversations. And so I'm glad we're you all as a congregation have them. But let me encourage you to have them in your homes, with your parents, with your children, or grandparents, with grandchildren. Continue to have these conversations. As this pastor said just a minute ago, the world is not, ultimately the world's hostile towards anything of God and his word. And that is the truth. That is is, what we stand upon is the truth of scripture. And let's anchor ourselves there. We do, this is our museum here and certainly up in Glendive, Montana. Uh, When you get uh, a step outside of town, you are in cattle country. And a little bit of farming country, and it certainly is a different world up there. We're working in what's called the Hell Creek Formation. There are a lot of the more well-known dinosaurs, such as Triceratops, Tyrannosaurus rex, and the like, are found in that area. Amongst other living fossils, such as many, ver- or many species of the crocodilians, turtles, and things of that nature. So it's an interesting blending of the fossil record. I enjoy each summer with my wife. Uh, she's not here. She had obligations that would not enable her to come this time. But I enjoy uh, the summers I get to spend with her. She's a blessing uh, as a helpmeet to me. And I'm certainly thankful the Lord has brought her into my life and that we get to enjoy this work together. Yes, she does go out and dig every day with me. And she enjoys it. And so I'm blessed by that. Our museum, uh, we have a 20,000 square foot facility We are the largest creation based dinosaur museum in the country, the second largest dinosaur museum in Montana. And so we are thankful the Lord has given us these opportunities, these resources, people that have been generous enough to donate and to help us build and really make a statement, make a say something about who God is in the process. I'll get to some of the field work as we get down toward the end. But one of the things that I do enjoy, and if you ever get to come up and dig with us, uh, part of what we get to do is we get to put these fossils back together. Because what you're seeing in front of me down here and in front of you is really not just the work of excavation, but it's the work of preparation in the lab, cleaning, gluing, repairing, fixing, putting putty in. And there's so, such a dynamic range of things that, that what you see when you pull a bone out of the ground might... You might, in some respects, not even know what you're looking at, but when you get it all prepped out, you're amazed at really what shapes and textures and details come to light in that process. I can't help but think, as we were talking just a minute ago, about the impact that our world has had upon us, and certainly I would be in that vein as well. While I was raised in church, I've been in church my entire life, what I recognized as I look back is that really I was being raised with two different worldviews, two different paradigms, without really knowing it. My parents weren't intentional in this, in this pursuit, but certainly they did not were not equipped to respond because being raised in church, I understood God is the creator of the universe. I understood the six days of creation. I understood the flood of Noah's day. But I also was interested in dinosaurs. If any of y'all had the little golden book series, this book goes way back uh, at least 60 years. And what is in it is you see this very first line here says, long, long ago before the days of man. Now what's tucked into that little statement, that little phrase right off the bat is the implications of the separation of humanity and dinosaurs. Now, when we have a biblical worldview and you understand that basically man and dinosaurs were created on the same day, it changes your viewpoint. It changes your understanding. But if you're raised with this, you begin to try to figure out how do I reconcile the two? And that's so much of the journey of my life. I remember being about 17 years old and asking my pastor at that time, how do I reconcile this evolutionary, millions of years, dinosaur's worldview with the view of scripture? And he had no answer for me. And I'd imagine many of you sitting here tonight, whether you are there now, you have been there in the past and you understand at least the nature of the journey and what, what typically happens with most of us is we assume that science is a benign pursuit, or should I say scientists are innocent in their presuppositions. And so we look at Genesis chapter one as an example and assume that it can't be literal because science has certainly refuted what Genesis one is saying. And so we we happily move forward in ignorance, but what happens is we wind up losing touch with the anchor of origin, the, the the supernatural process of Amen. God speaking creation into existence, and so we get disconnected from that. And so I hope to be able to connect that back for us tonight. Be sure that we're tying it off even tighter. Now. As I look back, also, um, I'm looking at the crowd here. If you have gray hair, you probably know what that thing is in the middle. We call that a ViewMaster. I also call it the first stab at virtual reality headsets. And so, uh, some, so if you know what that is, but we had a little, we didn't use batteries. We wasn't charged. We actually used the light in the room where we put our little disc in, and we would click the button. But again, tucked in with that was these messages of deep time evolution and dinosaurs tucked into that idea. It's interesting as I was just saying this, my grandmother, my mama's mama, wasn't sure dinosaurs were even a real thing. And some of you may be sitting in here tonight where you either thought that or feel that as well. And as I reflect upon that, I think so much of what she was struggling with is she had a paradigm that said dinosaurs' evolution millions of years don't fit into scripture, so therefore I'm just gonna ignore all of it. And that's really not necessary. That's not really the journey that we need to be upon. Because when I begin to embrace the Bible as a history book of the universe, while it is so much more than that, what we recognize is the unfolding of creation. And all the way through scripture, we see this declaration through prophecy and the fulfillment in Christ and his birth and his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven and the anticipation of his return. The Bible has really given us a complete history of humanity, of this world, of this creation with Jesus Christ as the central core figure. And it unfolds it in history, real places, real people, at real times, with real events. And so this has influenced and really shaped how I see paleontology, how I approach what I'm working on. When I think about paleontologists, I think in part they have to be part biologists. They have to understand the nature of how life works and functions. They have to be part geneticists. Not that they need to know the details and the particulars, but to understand that life is rooted ultimately in the the genetic code, the DNA, the information. And that anchors and informs and is the starting point for how life unfolds before us. They need to be part geologists is when we're looking at the ground, when I'm out digging, I can recognize simply when I find a fossil, I am thinking horizontally. The fossils do not randomly go up and down. When I find a starting point, I work in a very flat plain. And when I look into the hills, I can see the layers, different colors. These things only occur as a result of water. Water, if you were to take a, a two-liter plastic coat bottle, put in three different types of sediment, put water in it, shake it up, and set it down, what would happen? It stratifies, it layers out. You see the effects of water in the ground itself. They had to be part engineer. As we begin to think about how the complexities of life unfold, we can look, uh, I was just noticing this femur out here. Pastor, if I go and get it, you just kind of hold them down until I come back, okay? But I can see how that femur has little attachment points where tendons would tie muscles together. All of those systems are working as muscles contract and relax that create movement, this effortless movement, all part of the creation of design. And as a paleontologist, I must be part historian. And this is really where I think as a Christian paleontologist, I wind up being much different. I separate myself from many of the other secular paleontologists because I root my thinking, my understanding, my framework of the past in the Bible. The Bible becomes my history. The Bible is my history. Now for a secular paleontologist, they can't escape the need for history, but they've created their own history. And what they wind up doing is things like the uh, phylogenetic tree or the geological column. Those are man-made structures that become the framework of how they interpret the information. It really frames and colors everything they do from that point forward. And so the Bible becomes an irrelevant and unnecessary tool for history in light of how a paleontologist functions. For me, I can't separate myself from the Bible and its framework and its history. So in light of that, as we work through tonight, I look at the history of dinosaurs in certain epochs. Now, let me, before I get into this, just say this is kind of a baseline for us. I look at the creation account as six literal days. I approach that from today back to creation is roughly a little over 6,000 years. And I'm placing dinosaurs within that history, within that framework. So I want to make sure you hear me say that. And we have that as a baseline that we're working off of. And so as we let scripture unfold, we recognize that we have a creation epoch, which we'll talk more in just about in a moment. Then we see the fall of mankind, which changed things very fundamentally. We have a global flood epoch, a post-flood epoch, an ice age epoch, a modern epoch. And these These kind of mark how we would best see the unfolding of dinosaurs through the history of time in Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is no more important passage in all of Scripture than that one right there. For it establishes that God, an eternal all-knowing being, existed prior to creation. In fact, what I see when I look at Genesis chapter 1 is a basic flow like this. That God, the eternal, self-sufficient, self-existent, triune creator, has always existed. The idea of eternality is not that God has existed always and always through time. Time is an entity that is bound to creation. God is outside. He transcends creation. Eternality means God is without beginning or end. And so he is has no need of anything outside of himself, and creation is contingent upon God Himself being and speaking things into existence. Now with that said, as we begin to think about and unfold that particular concept in light of dinosaurs, I enjoy this this next slide is A group of third graders really makes this next slide a lot of fun. Answer this question without God. Which came first, the dinosaur or the dinosaur egg? Now, we're not in a setting where I can interact with you on this particular context, but I'll assure you it's a lot of fun with third graders. Because what they're wrestling with is you get them to respond, well, dinosaurs came first, and then I'll ask them the inevitable question. So where do dinosaurs come from? Well, they come from dinosaur eggs. Well, where do dinosaur eggs come from? They come from dinosaurs. And what you begin to recognize is this circular pattern that you can't break free of. And ultimately what we recognize is the necessity of God to bring anything into existence. And so this is what we're beginning to see as we unfold Genesis chapter 1. Says that on verses 20 through 23 said, And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the fowl multiply in the earth in the evening and morning were the fifth day and so this first thing that i want you to see here out of the text is there are general very broad categories that the text is giving us about how god created life he's created flyers he's created swimmers he's created land animals he's created crawlers And these become basic framework for life. That alone refutes any evolutionary concepts from common descent evolution. On day six, we read, and God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. So we see here that life has been brought into creation in these general broad categories. But he does God does not leave us with just that information. For we also see this phrasing after their kind, the created kind idea of barren men, uh, you may be familiar with the term baromenology, which is the study of the created kinds. And as we look at life, we intuitively can recognize when we're looking at a, a dog or whether we're looking at a cat. And while fundamentally, uh, body plan wise, they're virtually identical. There are those nuances that are different about them, even right down to their behavior that we can intuitively recognize. Dinosaurs would have been the same way. And so when we look at land animals, we're not just looking at just dinosaurs under land animals, but we're looking at God creating land uh, dinosaurs within their kind. And you see this right here, the hadrosaur kind, the sauropod kind, the tyrannosaur kind, the ceratopsian kind, and so on and so forth. Now this kind, this, this phrasing right here is interesting because one, we're affirming, and what the scripture's affirming is that God is creating life with a range of diversity that does not cross over. There's boundaries here. And so a kind is going to be a particular new, unique group of animals. But it also means that genetically speaking, God has infused that original kind with enough genetic information so that as it has offspring, that there will be variation within it. Dogs are the easiest thing for us to recognize. We know how much range we can see in dogs from length of their fur, length of their legs, and so on and so forth. But intuitively, instinctively, we recognize they're all of the same dog kind, and we would have had this same idea with dinosaurs. Now, this is really kind of where we begin to fight up against what the world is presenting to us. Evolution would teach a common ancestor, a single-celled organism, and everything in life has diversified from that single-celled organism. Now, what's required for that to happen is the infusion of new genetic information, whole new set of instructions to create new body parts where they did not exist before. But there's no mechanism for that to occur. And so the creation model recognizes the need for the information to exist prior to and not added in later because there is no means for that. And so I love this picture on the right, this diagram portion on the right, when we see the creation orchard. Where the diversity occurs within the kind and begins to get spread out. And as we begin to think about dinosaurs, uh, this is also a, what's called a phylogenetic tree. It's laying on its side. What I find interesting is they begin to study what paleontologists are doing here is they, through statistical evaluation, uh, observation of the bones, because that's all they're working with, they begin to group these animals. Now they're placing them in an evolutionary progression over millions of years. But if you just for a moment, just take this chart here and just set time aside, which I don't think time needs to be part of this. Just take time out of this equation and just look at how they've isolated the groupings of the animals. What they're crafting is actually really quite interesting. They're crafting a created kind model. Now, secular paleontologists are not trying to affirm what Scripture's teaching. But I think inadvertently, or maybe just simply because that's the truth and what we see in, in, as we evaluate the data, as we see this to be a very valid model, is if I just strip away the time and just take these boxes as large groups, we begin to see the created kind model begin to come to light here. And so if I were to apply that created kind model uh here and just turn it sideways that you saw in the previous slide, what we see is this is kind of a basic of how God would have created dinosaurs within their kinds on the creation week. As we think about created kinds today, we see variation. Genetically, we see distinctions, but also we can look at these animals and we can see similarities. And we can recognize some level of uh, commonality that we put them of the same created kind. Here's the Ceratopsians. Skull, nose, horns, unique. We look at the cat kind. The liger is an offspring of the tiger and the lion. And so their capacity to mate and have offspring is a liger. We see this with the Smilodon, the lynx, all cats. We recognize them, even though they've got unique variation. And the elephants as well. Now, we begin to move to the flood epoch, and I've, I've stepped over the, the fall uh, epoch for, for a reason here, because there's a, there's a lot of conjecture there. I think I would just say this way, the world that God created was perfect. But when man sinned, God cursed the ground and he cursed the animals, And so there were some changes that occurred, and I think it impacted life. And I think the animals who might have eaten plants, who would have eaten plants before the fall, now were subject to eating meat. And so the physical changes aren't as easily discernible as to what may have happened to them, but certainly there would have been an impact there. As we move into the flood epoch, we begin to look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 12 through 15 says... And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way on the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me and the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it, 50 cubits, and the height of it, 30 cubits. A couple of observations here. First of all, the flood itself is not a random runaway geological event, it's not an event that the weather got out of control. The flood happened at the direction of God as a direct act of judgment upon the sin of humanity. And it's an important thing that we need to resonate with and hang on to. Now, God in his mercy in his infinite wisdom and his providence directed Noah to build a boat so that he and his family and a certain group of animals would be able to pass through this global flood and come to the other side. I'm not going to talk much about the ark other than just make the observation that as we look at the ark, it was a vessel that was much bigger than I think what we may realize. I think it's capacities to carry. There have been estimates that range that it may have only housed somewhere in the neighborhood of 16,000 animals. In fact, I've even heard some propose, based on some modeling that the ark may have had vast amounts of extra space left over simply because of the anticipated or the hope that maybe more would respond. The question is, were dinosaurs on the ark? That's kind of a common thing. Well, there's a couple of things that work through. One is, as we talked in the beginning, God created dinosaurs after their kind. And so as we come to here in this narrative of the flood and the the animals being sent, we see in verses two, eight and nine, of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clearly not clean by two, the male and his female, of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean, and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth, there went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, and the male and the female as God had commanded Noah. I don't see any reason at this juncture to discount dinosaurs as being on the ark. They were created after their kind and the instructions here seem to be is after their kind, I'm gonna send them on the ark. I don't think they were clean animals and they would have been by twos, but I think they were clearly on the ark. Now this picture here, I realized as looking at this picture, you see the sauropod right in the middle. It looks like it's bigger than the ark. I just wanted to clarify here that the picture depicts the dinosaur being up close and therefore gives you the impression it's bigger. I think what we're looking at with dinosaurs is we're not looking at the biggest. We're not looking at the oldest. We're looking at animals that would have fit into the boat, clearly would have continued to be big, but would not have been the biggest of the big. The other thing that really strikes me is after the flood uh, is I think... They would have begun to repopulate the world to some degree, and they would have been seen and encountered with humanity. When we read uh, in Job 40, we read about behemoth. I believe we're looking at a literal dinosaur that would have been after the flood that Job would have seen. Almost virtually every continent in the world has some form of artwork tucked into its culture. That depicts creatures within its artwork that we would look at today and call dinosaurs. You see the, uh, on the left, the Ica burial stones from Peru. Uh, the picture in the top right is, looks to be a sauropod. That's from southeastern Utah. And then the one in the bottom right is a stegosaur. <clears throat> That's from Cambodia. That's a Topram temple in Cambodia. Now, you might argue this, but this kind of thing showing up in cultures all around the world, there are stories and narratives, not in the Bible, but stories independent of Scripture that would suggest a creature that's something different. I see these as evidence of post-flood dinosaurs inhabiting the world. Now, I want to spend just a few minutes looking at the flood and the flood narrative just a little bit, because I think there's some interesting geological things. And while we may be focusing in particular about dinosaurs tonight and wanting to know more about them, we can't separate really dinosaurs from the geological impact that brought their ultimate end, or at least the creation of the fossil record. We see here in Genesis 7, says, verse 11, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, The seventeenth day of the month, the same day where all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth and the waters increased and bare up the ark and it was lifted above the earth and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth and all the high hills That were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man. And every living substance was destroyed, which is upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things, and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive. And they that were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. And so this is the onset of the flood. We see this impact of what's going on. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the geology in just a moment. But I want you to understand for just a moment the theology of what's going on here. We have God clearly judging the world. And there's a global impact that's going on. God is encompassing the world with water. And it utterly destroys and devastates the world. And as you can see here, everything that had breath in its lungs died except that which was on the ark. Nothing survived. The more I look at the flood and look at the ground and as we travel across the United States and get to see the various land formations... I'm pressed to be reminded that whatever I thought the flood was like, it was worse. And I mean that and very seriously is we have this preconception sometimes, particularly as children, that it just simply rained for 40 days and 40 nights and that was it. That was the small part of what was going on as we see the effects underneath the earth. But this is so significant here as we look at second Peter chapter three, Peter's been preaching Christ in his return. And he says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter says, for this, they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that was then, that then was being overflowed with water perished, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. When I think of the word scoffers or mockers here in this context of what P- Peter was facing right here, it's easy to think that Peter's preaching and there's just a group of people over to the side, just kind of hurling insults at Peter. And I don't think that's really what's being communicated here. I believe what, what you have here are individuals who pr- are professing to know something that Peter doesn't know, are professing to have a special knowledge. If you're familiar with the term Gnosticism or Gnostics, Paul faced this. We read about this in Colossians chapter two, whereas the early church is being born. The early church is coming online. The early church is growing and the gospel is being proclaimed. The apostles are going forth. There are those who wanted either their own attention or just wanted to stand in opposition of the spread of the gospel. And so they profess to have some special knowledge. And I think this is what Peter is facing right here. And he says, when they hold their special knowledge positions, when they hold their anti-Christ positions, what they're doing is they're being willingly ignorant of things that they should know, things that they should understand. And Peter says, those things are the world that was then pre-flood. He's talking about from creation. So creation was a ball of water, a sphere of water. And I believe that sphere in the original in in creation had a core to it. And then we read on day three that land formed up out of the water. And I believe it came from that core. It was a supernatural work, but I believe it came from that core. And so now we have land coming through the water. Peter says, that's the first thing they ignore is that. And then in a reversal, The flood actually turns that whole process back around. And that land which stood out above the water now for a period of time was now back underwater. And Peter's saying they're ignoring these clear facts. Now, when I look at where we are today as a culture and society, I see the same thing. We have modern day Gnostics. We have scientists who clearly are rejecting the clear teaching of Scripture rejecting the clear evidence that's before them. The earth is not silent upon bearing the scars of a global watery deluge. It's not silent on it, it's clear. But, in, but, to, but the connection that they get, whether they admit it or not, and the connection we need to get is the flood was sent because of God judging the sin of humanity. And what Peter does here is he noticed that verse seven, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by that same word, that word God sends forth his word to, to release the flood and eventually to restrain his hands from creation. Ultimately, what we see is God created the universe, created the earth, and in the end, he will uncreate the universe in a final judgment. And we recognize as believers that's coming. We know that's coming. We anticipate that's coming. But a lost world, that's unsustainable. That's untenable. They can't handle that because they recognize that's the end of of their existence. When I think about the flood itself and getting more back to a little bit more of a geological perspective, there's a few things to kind of keep in mind. One is... That the original earth, most people think, was one continent, one landmass that would have been broken up at the flood. I see that if you remember in Genesis seven eleven it says the fountains of the great deep burst forth. That tells me that something under the earth's crust. There's some debates as to whether that was water on a significant amount. I actually lean more towards the mantle, uh, more of a volcanic type event that broke through the earth's crust and began to press the continents apart from one another. If you'll notice the red line in the middle with the yellow arrows to it, that's called the mid-Atlantic Ridge. It's what we call a divergent boundary within the within the plates in the ocean. And I think the flood, that would have been one of the places that the flood, the fountains of the great deep broke through the crust and began to press the continents apart from one another. We don't look, I don't like the, the term continental drift. I think of it more in terms of continental sprints. That we need significant process to move the continents apart, and the flood would have been able to do that. But a byproduct of that is as these cracks open up, and as the molten rock hits the water, this super hot material is hitting water. What happens? It turns to steam, it vaporizes and begins to shoot as fountains into the sky. And then that water will eventually begin to cool and it returns back to earth as rain. I don't think that God is introducing new water into the system at the Genesis flood. I think it's a redistribution of that which was already in place. So as we look at the flood itself and just kind of in this graph right here, we the passage I read ramps up at day 150. And God causes the, the activity of the geological processes under the water to cease. And so we now begin to see a regression and we begin to see the waters return and the continents restabilize and come back through to the surface. And we see this reorientation. So when I look at the earth today, what I'm seeing is the after effects that still in many respects are going on. We, we see the scars upon the earth of the flood and literally nothing within the geology and the weather patterns of the earth today, everything has been impacted by the flood. It has shaped everything. Even here we are some 4,000 years later and there are still residual effects of the flood. And so when I look at the evidence for our global cataclysmic event, I look at the separation pattern of the continents as we just talk, talked about. Mountain ranges that are a result of buckling or volcanic activity. These mountain ranges would not have existed prior to the flood And so when the flood talks about covering the high mountains, it's not talking about covering Mount Everest. It's talking about covering the high mountains that would have been previous to the flood, which would likely have been much lower. So the mountain ranges you see today are a byproduct of the flood and the geological processes that would have been working. The layering of the rocks, the stratification, which I mentioned earlier, I find this interesting, and we were out, my wife and I were out hiking in Grand Teton National Park. Uh, We were snowshoeing. We weren't hiking, snowshoeing back in January. We had a guide with us. And just out of the blue, he mentioned in the mountain range, which the mountains, the tallest one, I think is 13,000 feet, he mentioned that there's limestone and fossils up in the mountains. There's one particular peak that's got sandstone at 13,000 feet, it's got sandstone, which is, which is a, a rock that would have been deposited by water. And I'm like, okay, I know why that's there, but do you know why that's there? And these are evidences, and we see this literally all over the world, where we see fossils that shouldn't be at 10, 12, 13, 15,000 feet elevations because that's above the ocean, and there they are. this speaks to the processes of the flood, but it also reminds us that the mountain formations would have been late flood or post-flood. And in many respects, we're walking on and live upon a global graveyard. I don't know the particulars of this area here, but I know in Tennessee, we've got a vast amount of limestone and we've got a vast amount of marine fossils. I can literally probably within... Three minutes of getting out of my truck at a few key spots literally start picking fossils up. They're that plentiful. You probably have them here. When I go out west and dig up, I'm into dinosaurs. If you go to other parts, we are walking on a graveyard. We recognize something in the past has happened. And so when I begin to think about, as I look and read articles and read some of the papers... It's interesting the verbiage that affirms a flood but doesn't really give credit to it being a global flood. Here's a coelophysis, which is a dinosaur. Torrential rains, I love the, the drama that's here. Torrential rains began to fall suddenly without warning. A flash flood tore through a stream bed, drowning everything in its wake. Swept along by the muddy waters, the coelophysis were doomed. Whales in the desert. Maybe they became disoriented. Now, you need to hear this language, okay? You've you got to hear this. Maybe they became disoriented and beached themselves. Fuzzy words, maybe they were trapped in a lagoon by a landslide or a storm. Hmm. Maybe they died over a period of a few millennia, but somehow they ended up right next to one another Maybe just yards apart, tuned as the shallow sea floor was driven upward by geological forces and transformed into the driest place on the earth. So far, they got 40 whales that have been found. That's a picture of some of them right there. Now, this is, if I'm not mistaken, you see the picture of the inset on the right. I couldn't find exact distance, but I think we're within, a, we're over a mile off the coast. Now, I'm a well aware geological change, things can change. But here we have animals that would not be in this situation normally. So that tells me that there was an event, there was a watery dynamic happening in the past that brought this to bear. Scientists believe the remarkable fossil site dating from between six and nine million years is the first example of repeated mass strandings of marine creatures. Hidden in the Akama Desert for millions of years, the fossils came from four separate whale strandings, suggesting they were killed by a similar cause, toxic algae. I think they were killed by a flood and they were buried by sediment. But you begin to recognize that as you read the language here, they give credit, they're, they're giving credit to a flood, but they're not going to acknowledge a global flood. This is in the grand Canyon. And I've had some interesting conversations with people. If you'll notice, do you see the little people see the size of the people to give you a scale? These are rock folds. Rocks do not bend like this when they're rocks solidified rocks. The only way they do this is when they're still wet and pliable And they don't stay wet and pliable for long periods of time. And for this much sediment to build up, this much sediment must happen in quick succession. And so what you're observing here in this particular picture is the rapid depositing of vast amounts of sediment and the subsequent pressure that came upon it to fold it. We go out to uh, Dinosaur National Monument. And uh, you drip down into Utah and you can see these same kind of things here. When rocks deposit, they deposit in a very flat plain. And so something subsequently had to have come along geologically to create this uplift, this folding while it was still wet. These are all things that suggest a catastrophic water event. Now, where did the water go? Well, Psalm 104, five through nine makes an interesting insight for us here. It says, Who laid the foundations of the earth that it should be, should not be removed forever? Thou couldest it, coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke, they fled. At the voice of thy thunder, they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys unto the place where that which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. And so what this passage seems to be suggesting, and we see it confirmed with geological data, is what I call a vertical displacement. So if you've got water over the earth, over the continental crust, over the land, one of the ways that God used to get that water back off is to create a shifting where mountains would come up, and valleys would sink. And this vertical displacement is important for us to recognize uh, when we look into the ocean. This is off the coast of Iceland. That you begin to look at spots in the ocean whose depths will exceed two miles and probably much deeper. Now, I don't know exactly, I don't know what the pre flood ocean floor looked like, but if it's going to be consistent with what I understand the pre-flood continental lands mass was, it's probably not going to have a lot of ups and downs in it. And so what we see here is this sinking of the ocean floor would enable the waters to run off. If you go out to the Bighorn Basin out in Wyoming, the Beartooth Mountains uplifted and then the basin just outside of it, there's a fault there, dropped. Now, when you drive across that, you drive across a very flat valley and you're not, you can't perceive the layers of sediment. But if you'll see that I've got highlighted or noted Cenozoic, Mesozoic and Paleozoic. I'm not per se saying those are accurate assessments of time, but those layers, that sediment build up. And so there would have been a valley that would have been created and this kind of geological process happens in, in many places all over the continent and all over the world. As we look at the Ice Age epoch with respect to the dinosaurs and begin to recognize that as they came off the flood, they were coming into a different world. The pre-flood climate was a particular way the flood occurs. We have hot molten rock hitting water. The water temperature may have risen as much as 50 degrees. That increase in temperature would have created a high amount of evaporation. But if you've got volcanic material spewing ash into the clouds, into the atmosphere, you're going to create a a layer that's going to minimize the amount of sunlight, the amount of warmth that's going to hit the Earth's surface. So you've got warm water... Sending water, steam into the atmosphere and cool temperatures. And it returns to the land masses as rain and eventually as snow and eventually as ice. And eventually it doesn't melt in the summer. And eventually the summers get to a point in certain areas where they don't get back above freezing during the summer. And so when you think North Pole and South Pole today... Those are not conditions that would have been present prior to the flood. And so when I talk about the residual impact we see of the flood, these are areas that we would see this. um, I'm trying to think exactly. I know it's the Alaska region. It might be over in Canada. I know they have actually excavated dinosaur fossils. uh, And they have had plant life that would have been warm tropical plants. To get that far up, which again suggests pre-flood, that would have been something that would have been much warmer in a much different world. And so just to give you a general sense of where the ice age and its potential scope would have been, as it begins to impact the dinosaurs, I see, first of all, the climate would have been a big deal and would have limited their ability to bounce back. I think their food sources, their ability to access food that they might be used to, Uh, that they would have needed, would have been limited as well. And I think their existence would have been in smaller pockets. Uh, If you think of dragon legends as an example, I think those dragon legends are really evidence of really dinosaurs, maybe toward the end of their existence. But I think those are reasonable and viable to see them in that context. As we move into our final epoch, which is our modern epoch, and this is really where I hit the world of dinosaurs. We spend our summers up in eastern Montana digging up fossils. Uh, this, this is what you see below us is some of what we've gotten to work on over the last few years. And uh, it's a unique process. It's an enjoyable process. It can be a very tedious process. If you've got a hyperactive eight-year-old little boy, you're a little bit on on, on edge sometimes because they have a tendency to want to pull things just out of the ground, and you need that to slow down a little bit. Uh, as a, I still at times find myself enjoying the the little boy in me, uh, which still is there in spite of the white hair that you see on my head, to get out there and enjoy being reminded of the simplicity of life, to get the work in the dirt. To get to, to excavate a Triceratops, which was my favorite as a child. And in many respects, I'm so thankful that God's allowed me to come back around to this work after having so many years away from it. You'll see there in this picture that you see the nose horn and the brow horn. And uh, we eventually got that cleaned up on display in the museum. This is kind of the early stages. And, and very often what we are doing is just out looking for Bones oftentimes just fragments of bones, pieces of bones, and we start digging in where we find some place to start. Sometimes that turns into something like this project. Sometimes it turns into nothing. As you can see, we've got the brow horn in the cast, or the nose horn rather, at the bottom of the picture there, and it's wrapped in a field jacket, and then we eventually were able to get the brow horn out. You build a lot of unique relationships, shared experiences. Part of what I enjoy is getting to share these experiences with people like yourself. Well, I get to do it every summer and all summer. Some of us only get to do it once. But I like to be able to give you an opportunity to see it for yourself. I can stand up here and talk about the flood. And I can stand up here and talk about dinosaurs. But to be able to put your hands on it and be to go through the process... Uh, kind of deepens it and sets it in a way that's unique. The projects are fun that we get to work on. Some of them require pieces of equipment because the rocks and the bones are so big and heavy. The preparation takes hours, sometimes weeks, months, not just in getting them out, but once we get them back to the lab to get in and put together. This is another project we get to work on here this is part of the triceratops hip structure. If you'll see that, that's a cast there on the left. And the arrow is pointing to what is what's called a sacrum. It would be the lower back area for us. And this is with the triceratops. And you're working through that. You see the ribs that we got to work on this as well. And it's a, there's a joy and a satisfaction in the process. As I think about what God has given us in this opportunity to look at dinosaurs, I remember the first time I went out and dug the first few days years ago. And there was that first sense in which I, the, the visual that came to mind was I was looking through a window into a distant past and begin to recognize that that really wasn't an accurate assessment on many levels. What I begin to recognize is the more accurate pictures I was looking at a mirror. Because dinosaur bones are in the ground because of a global flood, and a global flood occurred because God judges sin. What you see here before you is evidence that God judges sin. And that's an important reminder. Now, as a believer, I don't have to run in fear from that, but I do have to be reminded of that. And so as we engage with the world, hopefully there might be some compassion and some opportunity to share the gospel. Because the only thing that separates any one of us from anybody else who's not saved is not something of myself, but the work of Christ on the cross. And the redemptive work that I get to enjoy on that. And for me, the dinosaurs are a vivid and important reminder of that process.